0: welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Credit Hour. We know the COVID-19 global health pandemic is raising all sorts of questions about the way we live. Over the next several weeks, we plan to share the perspectives of some of our faculty in fields like public health, economics, education, and more, in hopes they can shed light on this situation and the path forward. As always, thank you for listening, and go Yotes. On today's episode, we speak with Dr. Susan Strobel an assistant professor at USD in the nursing and master's of public health programs, and an expert in epidemiology and public health systems. Dr. Strobel, um, how are you doing this morning?
1: Great, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. Um, well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at USD?
1: Sure. I am an assistant professor in the School of Health Sciences, and I hold a joint appointment in the Department of Nursing and the Master of Public Health program. So I really wear two different hats in health sciences, and my background is I'm a nurse, and um, I did that for a couple of years, and then I jumped into a Master of Public Health program and became an epidemiologist and spent many years in medical device research and other areas of research, and then went back to school to get my doctorate because I really wanted to end my career having more impact with students and really helping to form the next generation of public health professionals. And so um, after I graduated in 2018, I accepted a position at USD.
0: Well, and could you tell us a little bit more about epidemiology, what that exactly is?
1: Sure. So epidemiology is the core science of public health. It's it really focuses on the, um, the study of disease and its occurrence. And so an epidemiologist is a person who tracks disease, knows how to use certain statistics to really model how, how disease might be um, um, carried out through a population. Um, we also spend a lot of time thinking about vulnerable populations and social determinants of health so that we can, we can help populations to be healthier um, we we think a lot about health promotion, health prevention, um, and so there's many different angles. You might be an epidemiologist who focuses on immunology or you know viruses or you might be more into epidemiology of the environment so the field is very broad but it's a core science and so it comes with um, understanding how to quantify population statistics and then looking at diseases and how that affects a population and what we can do about it.
0: Um, well, that's great. I mean, you obviously have a lot of, um, I think, background to at least understand you know some of the issues that we're grappling with right now as um, you know our country deals with the COVID nineteen situation. We're recording this um, on, I think, April fifteenth. Some of the, the days run together a little bit, but um, it's April fifteenth. So, yeah, they do. And you know, I just read a few minutes ago on Twitter that I think we had another one hundred and eighty um, positive cases that were reported today, and I think that. You know, has us over 1,100 total here in South Dakota. Um, out of the 180, 166 of the new cases were in Minnehaha County. I know in the news, you know, they've been talking so much about like hot spots. Um, what is a hot spot?
1: So, a hot spot is an area that has a large percentage of confirmed cases. So, in this case, there's a lot of confirmed COVID 19 cases. And often these hotspots are seen in densely populated areas. And we also need to remember that hotspots may be a function of better testing or more increased testing so that we, we actually can identify, you know, everybody that might have it. We might be able to be, be better at identifying them. And so that's what a hotspot is. And so we haven't really seen hotspots in some of these states that are more rural and frontier because of the population density. We just don't have that here, you know, in South Dakota and other states.
0: So how did the situation, I guess, escalate, um, you know, so quickly in Minnehaha County and specifically at um, one meatpacking factory, the, the Smithfield factory?
1: That's a really good question. And I, you know, my perspective as an epidemiologist, I really, I really think we have to remember that um, meatpacking, food service, these are critical infrastructures. And during a national security situation like what we're in right now, we have to remember that these these institutions all throughout the country, not just in South Dakota, they've been asked to stay open because it's critical infrastructure. We need to feed the population. And so um, we have to think about the fact that Um, these people are working very closely together, elbow to elbow, but it's a different type of elbow to elbow work than like an auto um, assembly line, for example. So if we think about meat packers, this is a very highly skilled position. So not every pig, for example, comes into Smithfield as the same size. And so these workers, they know, um, they know how, to assess for joints they know where to find that picnic ham they're butchering right there elbow to elbow and so it's a very different type of assembly line than it would be you know any other type of manufacturing or or big organization that has a lot of people in in their in their um, um organization so knowing that and knowing that we really depend on food in our country it's kind of the perfect storm and so how did this happen Well, um, I think it happened because we've got a lot of people that haven't been tested that, that may be asymptomatic carriers. And what I mean by that is they might be carrying the virus and not know they're carrying it, or they might, um, they might have the sniffles and think that it's seasonal allergies and not think it's the COVID virus. So it could escalate really quickly in a densely populated area.
0: You know, you mentioned, um, you know, businesses that are critical infrastructures like a meatpacking plant or, um, you know, anything related really with agriculture. You know, I was reading um, before I interviewed this morning something on Bloomberg News, and it it was kind of a revamp of a story that they had published some years ago um, about a spam factory and a a specific disorder that I guess had originated in the factory. And part of, you know, the hypothesis that they, you know, had thought at the time was maybe – The fact that the factory had sort of what would be known as like hot rooms and cold rooms, and there was just, frankly, a lot of, um, you know, almost like wind um, in the factories, and air circulation was so intense. You know, is there anything specific to, I guess, food factories um, that make them more susceptible to viral spreads like this?
1: I don't think so. I mean, that's that's just really an opinion. And there's probably somebody that might disagree with me. But I mean, the way viruses spread um, is, you know, this one specifically, it spreads through droplets from coughing or sneezing. And then when these droplets reach somebody else's eyes or nose or mouth, that's how the disease is spread. And so we have to remember that the disease is spread through the air person to person. Um, and I don't I I just don't think that one type of industry is more susceptible or vulnerable than the next. I think it has more to do with population density.
0: You know, and I know that's another question I wanted to ask was, is there a risk, um, you know, that this virus might be transmitted through food? Have, Have scientists taken a position on that?
1: Well, from what I understand today, this virus is not transmitted um, through food. And so people are not going to get sick by eating food. Um, If they're getting sick by eating food, it's something else. And so we really have to make that distinction. And so, you know, this is a person to person transmitted virus.
0: You know what? Then can I guess businesses do? Um, you know, in situations like you said, in, in in factories like this, where people are working pretty closely with one another, um, I guess to protect their employees, protect um, you know their customers, and ultimately the public.
1: So we we really follow the CDC closely, and we support what they're doing. We've got super smart scientists in Atlanta at the um, you know at Emory and at the Centers for Disease Control, and really it comes down to best practices with washing your hands with soap for 20 minutes. And I think, um, you know, this is almost grandmotherly advice, right? Like it's really important for super good high hand hygiene. But social distancing is not really going to work if we're not practicing good hygiene. And so really good hand hygiene, we have to train ourselves not to touch our face um, we have to train ourselves to cough in our elbow. Even if it's a tickle in your throat, we, you have to cough so that nothing is expelled into the, you know, a general room, so we, you know, cough in your elbow. And, um, you know, if you, if you are feeling not well, stay home, um, and clean and disinfect things that you touch, um, that you, you know, that you're in contact with a lot. So like kitchen counters, your computer, your phone, your eyeglasses, things like that.
0: You know, besides hygiene and maybe that is the the most important part and you've already answered this question, but what happens after, I guess a high, a viral hotspot occurs? I mean, what sort of mitigations are done from a public health sp- um, standpoint and how can the public protect itself?
1: So, we know that physical distancing works because that will help help you to be away from people who might be spreading the virus. So, um, you know, this includes school closures and workplace closures and cancellations of mass gatherings and other like sheltering in place orders. So that does work. Um, but we also know that that has to be accompanied with really good hygiene, really good hand hygiene. So we, what we really want is that, um, we don't want our hospitals and our emergency departments to be overwhelmed because people are sick. And so to mitigate it, we really need to, to think about distancing ourselves if we don't feel well from other people so that um, the virus can sort of like mellow out or die down or just not be around other people, you know, in that 10 to 14 day period, if you think you've been exposed
0: you know, when we do have to go out in the public, I think like when you have to go grocery shopping um, or even maybe when you bring groceries home, if you order online, you know, should we be like wiping down the boxes of the cereal that we buy? Um, I mean, how worried should we be about the transmission of this disorder um, through simple transactions like that?
1: Michael, that is a fantastic question. And I I know that I know it's being studied right now. I mean, I know I know that researchers have identified that the virus can live in the air. They do not know how long. I mean, I th- I've read all sorts of things, but there's nothing nothing that I've read scientifically that I believe. You know, when somebody says it lives for you know so many hours, but I we know it does live outside, but for days it probably doesn't live outside of the body for days. Um, I think I think we all have to do what's What's right for us? I, I hate to see. I hate to say anything definitively because I would hate to cause more anxiety than there's already out there. Um, but I think we just have to be smart about it. So if if you are grocery shopping and you feel when you come home like you really want to wipe your things down, I think you should do it. Um, I don't know personally if that's going to help or not, but if it makes you feel better, then I think you should do it. Does that answer your question? I mean, it's. This is one of those situations where where I personally don't wipe my groceries down. Um, there's a part of me as an epidemiologist that thinks we really do need to expose the virus to the population so that we gain immunity. Um, but that is not a very popular thing to say. And um, I'm very concerned about vulnerable populations with that thought. So this might be something, you know, to think about. But but at some point, we're going to turn the corner and COVID nineteen is going to become a community acquired virus, which means it's going to be out there and it's going to be part of our yearly viral, you know, what people are getting yearly um, when they get sick. So I don't know how to quantify that or to or to um, talk about that in a. In a way that's really generalizable to the public, and like best practices for how we deal with wiping down groceries or wiping down, um, you know, anything else.
0: No, comes, I, so. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, and so maybe just take a take a step back for a second. I mean, more generally, you you know mentioned how we're probably going to have to learn um, to live with this long term, right? That at, at a I think so. Point,
1: mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's unlikely that we'll be able to eliminate. Um, you know, the virus from the entire population. I mean, how, how will this compare then to maybe like a flu season? I mean, will we have yearly flare-ups? Um, how does a virus like this react, I guess? So
1: that's what the researchers are trying to understand how it does react. And um, right now at this, at this point they're looking, they're looking for those antigens in our bodies so that they can characterize how it really circulates in our body. And then they use that information to reference the virus against other viruses. So, for example, the seasonal flu, which we get our flu shot for. So that would be, you know, an influenza A or an influenza B strain of some type. So those we have a lot of information about their genetic character characterizations, about how they behave. Um, and also, since these flus have been around for a while, we can watch the world. So, so in the United States, all of our eyes are on Australia because they're six months ahead of us. So whatever's happening with their flu season, that's our heads up in the U.S. Like, that's how we can tell what's coming. So so knowing that, we're working, the researchers are working really hard to understand that so we can understand how COVID is going to behave in the population going forward. At this point, I don't know if there's a um, reliable and a valid antigen test that they trust. Um, and that kind of data will help them um, understand how to create a vaccine. And I know that there's trials. You know, they're, they're working as fast as they can.
0: Well, you mentioned the the concept of, like, an antigen test. Um, can you explain that, you know, for our audience a little bit? What is an antigen test? Why are they valuable from, like, a public health standpoint?
1: Um, Okay. So, yep, I'll do my best job here. So an antigen test is um, a test that looks for an antigen to be either present or not present. And these are usually proteins that they're looking for that live on the surface of that um, invading virus. So if you breathe a virus, in or you, you are, you know, somehow a virus comes into your body and that virus invades a cell and it, um, it, um, replicates itself inside the living cell of the person. And that's when it starts to, to really wreak havoc in the human system. So that antigen test is looking for the present or to test for an antigen, we're looking for that protein and when we can identify that antigen, then that antigen will launch a response. And if they can figure that out, then we can figure out how to attack, it, attack the virus and create a vaccine. So if you can't discover an antigen or if you can't figure out what that protein is, that's where the problem can be with creating a vaccine. So that's why an antigen test is really important. Also to understand if people carry the virus and don't have any symptoms, we can do an antigen test, test and say, oh, wow, you know, this is how it behaves in somebody who doesn't have any symptoms. So that, you know, looking for those proteins is a really important part of the microbiology of, of the virus.
0: You know, when you talk about vaccine development, I mean, stuff I read online says normal process takes anywhere from, you know, 12 to 18 months, and that's under, you know, kind of like best case scenarios. Um, Obviously, this situation is different. You have researchers from all over the world, um, you know, really dedicating probably all of their energy um, towards developing a vaccine like this. I mean, how difficult is the development of a vaccine? Um, And what do you anticipate with your, you know, knowledge of how the process works? I mean, how long do you anticipate it taking? So
1: this is kind of a loaded question because vaccine development was in its full thriving heyday in the 50s and 60s and 70s, actually, and companies were competing and they were creating and there was just a an explosion of really good science and, and really some really remarkable work in population health. So That being said, we know we can do it and we know we can create these vaccines quickly. It's a very underfunded area of pharmacy, um, pharmaceutical development. Big Pharma makes a lot more money in other areas. And so there hasn't been there hasn't been that line item of really supporting vaccine development. And it just becomes something that that pharmacy companies, they just don't make as much money. So we've got the ability to do it. We've got the horsepower to do it. It's whether these companies will align themselves and align themselves with the FDA to really get the job done. That's really a personal opinion. Um, I I would love to actually, you know, hear from somebody else on that point as well to see what their opinion is. But I know, I know there's the horsepower to do it, especially with the world working together. I think that the science will come quickly, um, especially if the FDA will allow, for example, um, testing like if the FDA will, Will allow testing at the same time as regulation to happen, so that the two are happening um, side by side.
0: I mean, I think the the question that everyone um, you know wonders is when can we go back to school? When can we go back to work? I mean, from a st- public you know health standpoint, when are we going to be allowed to relax some of the social distancing and maybe some of the way we approach our lives right now?
1: Oh my goodness! Do I have to answer this?
0: <laughs> well, I think That's maybe a, really a, 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 it's probably impossible to answer. I guess when, but yeah, me, how would how does that process work? I mean, you know, I, I've I've heard online, like I said, some of our national public health experts have talked about the idea that we might be able to open, um, you know, up earlier in some areas of the country than, than others. It probably won't be, you know, uniform. It'll be more you know patchwork. The the way it's allowed to occur. I I, I wonder if you can talk about that process. I mean, what do Public health officials and scientists need to be confident and comfortable with before they start making um, recommendations that maybe the public can be operating a little bit more normal.
1: So, great question. I um, I'm probably not the best person to ask on this, but to answer your question about how how long is it going to take for us to get back to life as we used to know it? Well, first of all, I don't think that life is going to go back exactly to life as we knew it. I think we're going to have to be really careful. I think people are going to have to take take um, being feeling that well seriously, and if they don't feel well, they're going to really need to to just stay home a couple of days to get through their illness. Um, I think hand washing and hygiene have to be have to be on everybody's minds. Oh. Um, so that being said, I think we're looking at these math models, we're looking at population numbers, we're looking at percentages of people who are ill, we're looking at hospitalization numbers and illness percentages, and we're, we're coming up with, if we think that the population has hit its peak, and if it has, and if we're on that downward trend, then we can maybe relax and open up more businesses, um. And get back to life as we used to know it. the The biggest issue is we want to protect those who are vulnerable and those who have um, compromised immune systems, the very elderly, the very young, and so we have to balance that. And I think I think that is the hundred million dollar question: is when is the appropriate time to really relax and get back at it?
0: No, I I really appreciate that I, perspective. I mean, I, and. and... You know, I, I think it's so difficult, um, and, and that's part of the reason why uh, you know we we want to interview experts like you on this podcast is try to get you know the, the different ways I, I guess you know experts and, and scientists and researchers are evaluating this. You know, I, I think your perspective is particularly interesting to me because I think it's kind of the thousand foot view of the situation, right? I mean, right. is there anything else you would want the general public to know um, from your just vantage point, your experience and background in nursing and epidemiology um, and and just sort of systems health. I mean, is there anything that, that you think has been lost in this conversation or that you would really want the public to be aware of?
1: So there are several things. And so the first is, um, I, I think we have to do a really good job of taking care of ourselves and staying on a routine. I I think it's really easy to just stay at home and one day rolls into the next and the next day, and then you lose track of what day it is. And I think it's really important to model that for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, to have a routine. Um, and then and to find some purpose every day, whether it be to, to work on your own mental health and and thinking positively or, or maybe um, reaching out to family and friends that you haven't seen or haven't been in touch with over Zoom or phone calls or emails, um, something to um, think about other things other than the virus. So I think it's really important that we think about that. Um, I also think it's really important that that people are rational and reasonable when they go shopping. I've heard and seen some really interesting stories about people hoarding things at grocery stores. And that that only creates more fear and more alarmism. And I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that helps any of our our ideas about health promotion in our communities. And, you know, we would never want our neighbors to not have and something essential um, because we've hoarded it. I just think We need to flip our thinking on that one. Um, And then the other is, I really encourage people to look to, like in South Dakota, go to the State Department, um, South Dakota State Department of Health, go there for your information or go to the Centers for Disease Control for your information, because I think there's a lot of alarmism and news stories that cause anxiety and pressure. And um, we don't need this extra anxiety and stress. I mean, it's plenty stressful, I think. Um, and so I, I think that's a best practice: is to check check the South Dakota Department of Health, and then look at it once, and then go about your day, and then maybe check the next day. But try to get away from looking at all of this crazy news and social media. Um, you know that causes you to feel anxious. And I think um, I think we all know what causes anxiety: you get that that feeling, you get a headache, you you know thing things happen to you physically and make you not feel very good. So. I would encourage people to really practice personal health promotion
0: you know, is there anything that you're doing right now as far as research at usd to study the effects of the pandemic
1: Yes, there is, and um, I'm glad you brought this up because our Master of Public Health program, led by one of our faculty, um, Chelsea Wiesner, she, she and the team, we've put together this survey. It's called a Community Impact Survey, and we're really looking at the impact of the coronavirus on populations in South Dakota. And um, what's interesting is that it's informing us in real time, and we've got a survey link which I will give you, and we really encourage anybody who's over 18 to go to this link and fill out the survey. It's less than 10 minutes, and it will just help us so much to understand the population. But additionally, we also have this survey available in Spanish. And so we really encourage people who are Spanish speakers to fill it out as well so we can understand and maybe help help the populations and help inform the Department of Health here in South Dakota. So um, the survey link is USD. Dot edu forward slash COVID nineteen forward slash South dash Dakota dash COVID nineteen dash survey.
0: Um, I know that's a mouthful. Could you actually just repeat it for our audience one more time?
1: Sure. USD. Dot edu slash COVID nineteen South dash Dakota, dash COVID, dash 19, dash survey.
0: I just want to thank, thank you again for uh, coming on our podcast today and sharing this perspective and information with us. Uh, we really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Credit Hour. Stick with us as we continue to bring you new information and perspectives surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Until next time, Wash your hands, stay safe, and stay home. Go Yotes.